Welcome to the Living Faith Missionary Church Podcast. You're about to listen to a message from Pastor Chris Starn, Senior Pastor at Living Faith in Yoder, Indiana. It is our prayer that this message is an encouragement and a blessing to your life. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to the book of Galatians. We will be in the book of Galatians. Uh, we're going to skip... Um, I'm not going to skip Christmas. I shouldn't say that. We're going to we're going to do four weeks of Christmas. I, I'm, what I'm planning on doing for the Christmas time is we're going to look at prophecy in the Old Testament about the birth of Christ, and uh, it's very interesting how that prophecy was fulfilled on that night and uh, during that time. So we're going to do that for four weeks. Um, then I am gone for a couple weeks. My family and I are gone. We're going on vacation for a few Sundays, and we'll be back. We'll finish up Ephesians. I'm sorry, Galatians. We've done Ephesians. We'll finish up Galatians, and we'll start on the next series. But if you uh, got your Bibles, turn to Galatians 5. We are going to start in verse 13, and I'm going to make you stand up again. So please stand back up as we read God's Word. Here is what Paul is writing. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. He says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you uh, for Paul and his his writing and reminding us that the whole law is summed up in loving each other, loving our neighbor. Sometimes, Father, we know it's not easy, but we know that you are our salvation. You give us grace and help us to do the same. As we listen to your word, as we examine it, Father, may it change our, our whole perspective on our world today and in our neighbors. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. <clears throat> you know, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time keeping my garage organized. In fact, right now, if you were to come to my garage, you'd, you'd find out that it's really a mess because I've, I've lost half of it because we've had to move everything out of our shed. We've torn, yesterday a couple guys came over, we tore the shed down and moved it because I got a new shed coming. And I know, I'm sure, sure that I will have a hard time keeping my shed organized. It's not a matter of enough space, it's just a matter of not being able to do it. And as much as I would like to use the excuse of my garage being stuffed with everything now for my messiness, the reality is that even without all these items in my garage, it would probably still be a mess. And let's be honest, some messes are worth making. Now, if you're making a meal for your family... Uh, you know, Thanksgiving's just around the corner, and if you're putting together a meal and you're you're messing up the the, the kitchen, you know that mess is worthwhile. It is really worthwhile to make a mess in the kitchen when you're having family over. But then there's some other messes that aren't. Kind of like letting your kids finger paint on the white carpet in your living room. 
that is not exactly a mess that is worth making. Now, we must understand that uh, the church is a messy place. I've got a a book that I just, I'm going to buy. It's called The Messy Church, which talks about, you know, how to do ministry amongst a church that's messy. And we are all part of a messy church. But this mess is worth making. At least it is in God's eyes. I mean, the church is so precious to God that he bought it with the blood of Christ. And it's messy. It's a messy place to be. But God loves the church so much that he he calls us the bride of Christ. And the reason for this, the reason that God does this, and the reason He loves us so much, is you know what He's doing? And this doesn't sound right to us, to our human ears, but He's actually showing us off to those in the heavenly places. Look what it says in Ephesians 3.10. He says, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. So He's saying, The church was created so that through us, through the church, the manifold wisdom, God's wisdom, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities. Where? In the heavenly places. Yes, the church is messy. But God loves it and he created it so that his glory could shine through it. And then he could look at his heavenly host, look at the church council, the, the, the heavenly council and say, look, Look at my glory. Look what my glory does to a messy church. God believes that the mess of the church is worth making. There's a couple authors, and uh, uh, Paul David Tripp is one. I've read quite a few of his things, and he wrote a book with Timothy Lane, and it's called um, Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. And this is what they said. They said, now, now why we would we like to avoid the mess, and wouldn't we all like to avoid the mess? And enjoy deep and intimate community, God says that it is in the very process of working through the mess in the church that intimacy and true community is found. See, it's in the midst of the mess of relationships in the church, in our lives, that we find real, true community. Many of us would prefer the church to be, you know, mess-free, you know, sanitized. You know, there are no problems in the church. We all get along. We all love each other. We're we're a loving church. That's what I hear a lot of times from churches, and I've been to some of those churches. They're they're not loving. There's this undercurrent. They want to be loving, but it's messy, and it's okay because it's within the mess that community occurs. We get upset, though, when we see things that are are messy in the church and we we have to deal with the messes as part of the life of the church. So the question is, how do we do this? You know, if I want to clean up my garage, the the best thing for me to do is just to pick one section. You know, if I sit there and look at the whole section of the garage and I'm just like, "Uh, I'm going to go inside. You know, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to start it. But if I say, okay, I'm going to clean my workbench. Now the goal is, I clean my workbench and then I continue on so that when I'm done cleaning the rest of the the garage, the workbench is still clean, right? We have to deal with it. 
I have to work through. We've got to have a plan for how we're going to work through the messiness of the church. Because if we don't deal with the messiness in church, if we don't deal with our messes, and, and, and believe me, the church is messy because we're messy. It's a simple fact. You know, if, if you want a perfect church, then don't have any people in it. That's, that's, but then it's not a church. It's just a building, right? We're the church. The building is just the building. How do we work through it? The churches in Galatia had found themselves in a mess, a real mess, and it was of their own making. They're the ones who were listening to the Judaizers. They were believing another gospel. So Paul writes this letter to help them kind of sort out the mess. It seems, I don't know about you, but if you read Paul, it seems to me all he did was fix the church, right? Fix the messes all the time. Every letter that he wrote was usually, except for the letters to Timothy and some of the letters to individuals, but any time he wrote to a church, there was a problem he was trying to solve. And it was messy. And he's trying to clean up their mess. He's trying to tell them this is how... Now, he doesn't say, like me as a father would, you know, my children's... You know, my children, I look at their bedroom, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's a mess. I'm just going to go in there and I'm going to clean it up, right? No. No, I'm not. I'm going to tell my kids how to clean it up, give them ideas. Paul doesn't go in and, and, and you know, smack everybody around in the church. I'm sure there's many a pastor, not me, of course, that would want to you know, go around and smack people in the church. Some of their people. And some of their people deserve it. But Paul doesn't do that. He, he gives them ideas. This is what you need to do. He tries to lead them back on the path where they need to be going. And that's what he was doing in the first four chapters of the book of Galatians. But then we're getting to the final chapters of 5 and 6. And sometimes this is called the ethical section of Galatians. He's going to give them practical answers. Don't we all just want practical answers? Just tell me how to do it right. You know? No, we don't. We don't do that. I'll do it my way. Right? Don't tell me how to do something. Right? We don't like anybody telling us how to do anything even though they're probably right. And Paul was right. But he's trying to give them practical ideas and and, and practical steps, provide instructions to the churches on how to work out of the mess that they have now found themselves in. By the way, I know I normally preach from my pad, and I had to change the password, and now I can't remember it, so my pad has locked me out. Pray for me. I love technology. And I loathe technology. I'll get it up and running. So I'm I'm doing it the old-fashioned way. This is great. But at the beginning of these verses that we read in in verse 13, I mean, we're we're starting, this is kind of like the final section of Galatians and, and through to the end of Galatians is going to be, this is the key on how to navigate the mess we are all in in the church. And I know not all churches, we're not, we're not, that messy, where we're not on hoarders, let's put it that way, church hoarders, let's put it that way. it's not that bad, but we do have messy lives, and we need to deal with them, and we need to deal with them with love and compassion. Verse 13, I will go back and read it here, he says, for you were called to freedom, brothers, he's saying you're, you're supposed to be free, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 
best example I can think about that, going back to the garage idea, I have a workbench in my garage, and I have a place for every single tool. There's a certain drawer that every tool goes into. What do I do when I go to put my tools away? I lay them on the workbench, don't I? What does Beth do when she goes to take a tool out there? Well, she puts them in the chair in the other garage, so I have to take them out. But I'm like, in the, I, I just, I don't put my tools away, right? I'm using, it's my, it's my garage. I can do what I want. I have freedom to do what I want in my own garage. Well, I have freedom that Beth allows me to have in my own garage. <laughs> now I have to delete that part from the video from when she listens to it. No, I get to do what I want in my garage. I have that freedom. But what am I using that freedom for? The church in Galatia had freedom. They were free. They believed. These were Gentiles who believed in Christ. They had freedom. And people were coming in and telling them, no, you need to be slaves now. You need to be slaves to Judaism, to the law. Not just observing the law, but becoming part of the becoming Jewish. And they're beginning to serve another gospel. And it's the very thing that Paul believes. He's given them the things that he believes will enable the church to work out this current crisis. See, they were free. He says, for freedom, freedom is the foundation of our life as a church community. You, you, you come into the church, and, and, and if you're not a believer, you accept Christ. What happens at that point in time? You are free from your sins. It's about freedom. You have the freedom to come here on Sunday mornings. Nobody forces you. Our, our, our church community is built upon freedom. Human relationships and human communities will, will ultimately not flourish unless they're grounded on freedom. And that freedom only comes through Jesus Christ. We talked about this, I think, last week or the week before, that the freedom we have in this country is, 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 a, is a facade. Unless we go back to the founders and we, we believe that all men are endowed by their creator. Without God, there is no freedom. Without Christ, there is no freedom from your sins. None. You need Jesus in your life. We as Americans seem to think that freedom is a, is a political or an economic term. We're proud to proclaim, proclaim that we live in a free country, which is a statement that I really doubt today. Or we might say that, you know, as far as financial, we may say, well, I'm debt free. I have no debt. I don't owe people any money. I, our house is paid off. Cars are paid off. I don't have credit card debt. You know, we're debt free. But see, the difference is is that if you look at freedom from a biblical perspective, it's relational. Our freedom is determined upon what? Upon our position to God, our relationship with God. If our relationship is suffering, we have less freedom. Which it's kind of counterintuitive because a lot of people who don't believe in Christ will say, Well, you're you're slave to Jesus. You're, you know, you have to follow all these rules. I don't know about you, but sometimes there's freedom in following rules. I know what I can do and what I can't do. And it saves me a lot of trouble. (laughs) But 
when we when our relationship with God is not what it should be, we are in spiritual and moral bondage. We're slaves to sin, no matter what country we live in. And while we may feel like we're free, and that's that is the that is the insidiousness of sin. Sin tries to tell you that you're free. You can do this. You get to choose to sin, and it's good. You'll like it. But in reality, it's not freedom. We're actually shackled to it. We're not free. We're not autonomous. We are all under the lordship of powers that are much stronger than ourselves. When our relationship with God is not what it should be. When, when we are not under, when we are not close to God, we are falling under the powers of the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly realms. That's why we're to put on the full armor of God. But see, when we get close to God, we are under a lordship that's even greater than that. We're, you know, greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. I'm going to give you all these little verses you know, you've heard your whole life. But that's the meaning of them, is the fact that you know, if we're not in a good relationship with God, then what we find out is that we are under the lordship, we're under the, the dominion of evil. But if we flip that coin over, we look at the other side of the coin, the more intimate, the more vibrant our relationship with God, the more freedom that we'll enjoy. But there's a paradox In our relationship with God, you know, we're freed from the slavery to sin. We're no longer enslaved to ourselves. But the paradox is that in the process, we become slaves to Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 6, he says, bond servants. He's talking to people who are slaves. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Just because we're believers in Christ doesn't mean, and we've been freed from our slavery and sin, doesn't mean we can just do whatever we want to do. That's why Paul's saying, don't use your freedom as an excuse to sin. Just because it's my garage, I can't just go and throw everything I want onto my workbench. That's why it's the way it is right now, because guess what? I needed some tools yesterday, and guess where they are? They're at the bottom of the pile on the workbench. All the tools I ever need are always on the bottom of the pile of the workbench. And I have the freedom to do that, but I pay the consequence. He says, obey your earthly masters. Not by the way of eye service. means don't just pay lip service or eye service to it as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. It's not just because we do this. We don't just do what God wants us to do just because we want Him, you know, want Him to look good at us, you know, just because we want to be in His good graces. It's because in our heart, that's what we want. We long for it. We desire it. You know, before God called us, we were slaves to our sinful nature and to ourselves, and what's what the Bible calls the flesh. Our flesh is a fallen. Self. Every single day, every hour, and many times every single moment, we are experiencing our fallen self. Now, some of the churches today, some of the progressive churches will tell you that you don't have a sin nature. So you don't have to worry about sin. 
There's no atonement. Jesus didn't have to die on the cross for you because there is no sin. I'm sorry. (laughs) I've seen humanity. It's fallen. But we have this fallen flesh. We experience it through our sinful passions and our desires, our illicit desires that that course through our bodies. In a later sermon, we're going to see what Paul calls the desires of the flesh. And and then we're going to see what Paul refers to the flesh with its passions and desires. But for now... uh, you know, we're just going to just kind of begin looking at the flesh. And, and the flesh, you know, if it would just keep to itself, it wouldn't be such a big deal, right? If my sinful nature would just stay within the confines of this. But the issue is that it doesn't. And what happens is my sinful nature begins to come into my relationship with my family. It begins to influence the relationship with my wife, with my children. It begins to influence the relationship with the rest of my family. And then it starts to influence the relationship with my neighbors. The people I encounter during the day. Our flesh acts up and out. You've seen it. You've been in Walmart walking through and there's a lady with a little boy and the boy, oh, he's just so cute, isn't he? Just adorable. Sitting in the cart and she passes you by and goes in the next aisle over and all of a sudden you hear that little boy screaming its head off. That's the flesh. My flesh screams to get what it wants. Not just for me, but in my relationships and with my encounters with other people. It acts up and is what is called the works of the flesh, which we'll explore in a couple weeks. But for now, we have to understand that these acts of the flesh run in complete opposite to the will of God. And in the process, it undermines our relationships with each other and relationships with humans and the relationship with our community. And remember what Paul says at the beginning in verse 13. He says, you've been called to freedom. You've been called for freedom from that flesh. And here you are, you're hanging on to it, you're allowing it to control your life. But that's not what you're called to. You're called to something much better. And how does God call us? He does it by calling us to himself. And he takes us and he unites us with his son, with Jesus Christ. And when he does that, the flesh is crucified. Galatians 2.20. We studied this back when when I did the sermon on Galatians 2.20. Go back and listen to it online if if you missed it. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. It's no longer my flesh that's living in me, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Basically what Paul is saying is, Jesus is in me. He's, he's, he's overcome the flesh. But I have to daily allow him to do that. Sometimes I have to do it minute by minute by minute. Because 
because the sinful flesh, while it is crucified, is not eliminated. And you think, why? I mean, wouldn't it have been easier if when we accept Jesus, then the flesh is gone? Well, the problem is, guess what? Flesh. That means I would be gone. And we would no longer be in this world. And you think, well, wouldn't that be better? Wouldn't it have been better if Jesus had just solved it all? Well, then you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be here. None of us would have an opportunity to know Jesus and spend eternity with him. I have people, I've had someone ask me that. Why, why didn't Jesus, when he died on the cross, just, that was it? Because then you and I would never had an opportunity to believe in Christ and spend eternity with God. We have the sinful flesh in us still, even though it's crucified, we're still dealing with it. Our bodies are still sinful and fallen. And we still live in a sinful and fallen world. And guess what? Our flesh is constantly, diligently seeking an opportunity to reinvade us and take control. You all know it. And if you sit and you, you try to tell me that you don't ever have any problems with temptation, you're a liar. It says so in Scripture, if we say we have not sinned, we're liars. And if we're liars, we've just sinned. <laughs> but it wants to reinvade and take over. It, it wages war within us and through us in the process into the lives of those around us. You want to know why you're struggling in relationships? Is because either your sinful flesh, I'm not, no, not either. <laughs> because your sinful flesh and the sinful flesh of the person you're struggling with are trying to take control. That's why you struggle with somebody. And they're fighting. The flesh is the sworn enemy of relationships and community. Our passions, our self-centered passions, desire, they wreak havoc. They make us not think straight. And they tear apart our relationships. We become selfish, judgmental. Our flesh wants to establish this beachhead in our lives and wants to take over. And what it wants to do, it wants to establish this beachhead so then it can spread out and become part and, and, and just control all parts of our lives. It wants to be part of every single relationship that we have. If you've ever been in a relationship with somebody and you've said, I deserve better, I deserve this, that's your flesh. Because you know what you deserve? Death. You deserve. You don't deserve anything. We deserve death. Anything we get is God's grace and blessing. And the flesh, it's ruthless. It takes every opportunity, if we, if we allow it, to have a little bit of a foothold. It's always with us. And the worst thing is that the world around us encourages the flesh to try to take over. Don't believe it? Watch TV. Uh, we've, we don't really watch much regular TV, but every once in a while we'll put on what's called the Pluto Channel, which has all these regular TV shows, and we'll watch it. And whew, Commercial comes on, and I'm like, oh, my. Really? It's the world screaming for my flesh to take over. 
It's ruthless. Just to give you an idea of what we do to give the flesh a beachhead, here's just a few examples. This is, this is how, this is what you're not supposed to do, by the way. We're going to go do the antithesis. This is, this is the opposite of what you're supposed to do. But this is how, what we do in our lives and how it gives a sinful flesh a beachhead. The first one is, we don't forgive. We hold a grudge. Well, they, they didn't ask for forgiveness. Oh, oh, and they never will. They may very well never ask, but you still must forgive. Because forgiveness is not about the other person. It's about you. People have hurt you in your life. Yes, they've hurt all of us. Every, every single one of us has someone in our life that hurt us. We must forgive them. We must not hold a grudge. Because when we do, the sinful flesh gets a foothold. The next thing is we allow ourselves to put a negative spin on the actions of others. Somebody says something or does something, and what do you do? Well, how dare they say that? That's what they're thinking. We start begin to, we begin to spin it in such a way, especially social media. I'm not even hardly on social media anymore. I just get so tired of things being spun the wrong direction. That's not what that person meant. And even if they did, why did they say it that way? And what were the, you know, try to find out more. If I say something to you and you don't understand it and you get all bent out of shape and start spinning in the wrong direction, you're to blame because you didn't come and ask me to clarify. Now, if you come and you were completely right, you have every right to be mad at me. <laughs> and shame on me. Then I have some repenting to do. And I have to say I'm sorry. Don't put a negative spin on what somebody says until you get more information and you know for certain that that's what it is. But in that same tone, we have a tendency to indulge ourselves in speaking negatively of others. It's how gossip starts. We've experienced it. This person starts complaining about something. This person comes along and starts complaining about it too. All of a sudden, it just explodes and it destroys. It destroys relationships. It destroys community. We must not indulge speaking negatively of others. Well, yeah, but they're such a bad... They deserve it. Nobody deserves it. Because for every negative thing I can say about something, somebody, God has a thousand negative things he can say about me. And the problem is, is the next one, is that we continue in a conversation with someone who's negative. And we allow the conversation to progress to gossip, critical speech, harsh words, insults, sarcasm, and ridicule. Somebody comes to you and is negative about somebody, stop them. Say, you have a problem with them, you need to go talk to them directly. Don't come and complain to me about them. You talk to them directly. If you don't get satisfaction with that, then you need to take. Then come back to me, and I'll go with you, and I'll be the I'll be the the peacekeeper, peacemaker. But if I don't agree with you, and and you're just being negative, then you're done. Be quiet. If that person doesn't change, if it is a real thing, then we take it to the elders. If it's in the church, there's a process. The problem is nobody wants to go through the process. They'd rather just go into their own little corners and gossip and complain about everything and about people. 
And I'm, just talk, I'm not talking about in the church. I'm talking about in the world. You find it in offices. You find it in places of employment. You find it in grocery stores, for crying out loud. You see somebody who's, that woman who had that little boy, oh, she would just, she would just do this with that child. You don't know her circumstances. Don't continue a conversation with someone who's negative, who's leading you to a path of gossip, critical speech, harsh words, insults, sarcasm, and ridicule. And the last thing we don't that kind of, that gives our flesh a, a foothold is we don't deal with personal grievances quickly and with the person that we're upset with. What do we do? We let it fester. I love the Adams family. And Fester introduces himself. I'm, my name is Fester. It means to rot. And that's what it does when we don't deal with it. It rots. See, see if, if Paul's telling us to not abuse our freedom by allowing our flesh to take control. Because what happens is if, 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 we don't, if we don't stop these things we're doing, then Satan will get a foothold. He'll take advantage of these five things and many other things, and he'll use them to destroy our relationship and our community. I truly believe that if we just stop these five things, the church culture would just change overnight. It would. And the spiritual temperature of the church would increase but we can't, we, we can't abuse our freedom. Because if we abuse it, we're going to lose it. We become less free. When we turn from freedom and we go back to slavery, we go back to the sinful flesh, we lose our freedom and, and it's that opportunity that flesh takes and it'll become, we'll become a slave to it again. We'll fall back into it with all its desires and all its passions. And all those paths that we made in our lives and all those things we've done, all those relationships we built, if we allow our flesh to, to come back in and take control, we're gonna, those roads are going to be closed. We're going to damage our relationships. We're going to damage our community because the flesh wants to destroy it. We must be on guard. We must be vigilant against the flesh. I know I've used this verse a lot, and I'm going to use it again, because this, is, this really explains it. Paul really understood what he was talking about here. In Romans 7, he says, I, I, I do not understand my own actions. You know, We don't always understand what's going on when we feel that conflict inside of us. For I do not do what I want. What I want to do is I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. But I do the very thing I hate, which is the flesh. Now, if I do what I do not want, okay, which is the flesh, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but it's the sin that dwells within me. It's my flesh that's doing it. Doesn't mean that, believe me, it doesn't mean that I am resolved of any responsibility for this. It just means that that's what's causing it, and I need to have that under control. I need to be vigilant against it. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I want to do it. I want to fly. 
No, seriously. I want to go to the top of the cliff. I want to run, jump off, and fly. I have the desire. I don't have the ability. Paul says, I want to, I want to do the right thing, but I can't. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Seem familiar? That's for me. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And later on, he says, man, what a wretched man I am. Have you ever really sat and thought about this? How wretched we are when we allow the flesh to take over. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I've already said, I can't do it myself. I can't be good enough. There's none of us that are good. We can't do it. Who's going to do it? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There's this constant battle going on within us. In the next chapter, he says, and this is the, this is the answer, right? He, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How do you, how do you eliminate, well, not eliminate, how do you fight the flesh? How do you stay vigilant against the flesh that's constantly going to want to come and take control? By being in Christ. By being joined with Christ in his crucifixion. When we accept Christ, when we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, he came, he died, we trust him for our salvation, we know we're not good enough, we look to him as our Savior, the Lord is my salvation, yes, because now we can look to him, He, we are in him, and we can fight the flesh, we can hold it off. If we try to do it on our own, we're going to fail. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So how do we fulfill the law of the Spirit? And Paul tells us in Galatians how to do it. He says we do it by serving each other in love. Because in verse 14 he says, For the whole law is filled in this one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Remember, I said that freedom is the foundation of community. So we, we shouldn't abuse our freedom with catering to our sinful flesh, to our self-centered passions, our desires. But we should serve one another in love. By doing so, what do we do? We fulfill the whole law. The Galatian church was being told, you must be circumcised in order to be a believer in Christ. You must obey the law. You must fulfill the law. And Paul says, no, we fulfill the law by loving each other and serving each other in love. But if we fail to serve each other in love, He tells us what's going to happen. He says, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Every church that's ever shut down, I bet if you go back in their history, you will find some place where the people in that church begin to bite and devour each other. They didn't serve each other in love. And it destroyed the church. Every relationship, every marriage that has failed... There's some place along the line where they began to bite and devour each other. 
And you say, well, no, our, our marriage failed because my wife or my husband cheated on me or they abandoned me or, you know, yes, they probably, that, that was, that was probably the end result, but that's not probably where it started. It started with biting and devouring each other. So how do we serve each other in love? Well, first we can begin by praying for each other. It's, it's, I don't know, I have found it, at least in my life, it's kind of difficult for me to pray for somebody and then turn around and stab them in the back. Because I don't usually pray, Lord, help me stab them in the back, right? I'm, probably, I'm praying for their wellness, for their goodness, for, for what they need in their life. It's vital that we pray for each other, but it's probably the most overlooked way to serve each other. As a community, we should be praying for our church and in general and also praying for specific needs of people. That's why we have the prayer line. That's why we have the prayer emails that go out. Whenever somebody has a prayer request, we send it out. We're supposed to be praying for each other. We're supposed to be praying together. That's why we have the prayer service. I just wish more people would come and pray, but that's okay. God will send who he's going to send. But we need to be praying that's the first and probably the best way for us to love each other. The next thing we do, we can serve each other by bearing one another. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to carry Jeff in here every Sunday morning. I don't think I could. No offense to Jeff, but I think my back just couldn't handle it. And neither could yours, for that matter. But we must bear one another. Ephesians, what Paul says in Ephesians 4, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So we've been called to freedom. We've been called out of slavery. We've been called to be believers. Walk that way. Don't just pay lip service to it. Walk it. With all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Oh, that's a hard one. But they frustrate me. Yep, they sure do. And for every person that frustrates you, I'm sure there are two people you frustrate. We must do it with humility, gentleness, and patience. This means deciding to overlook those times when you're offended. Yes, you have to overlook it. This doesn't mean you allow people to spiritually and physically walk all over you. If somebody consistently is offending you, you need to go to them and address it with them. But that doesn't mean that one time a person's having a bad day and they spout off to you and now you're just angry and you go and talk to your friends about it. It's, it does, that's not right. That's wrong. It's a sin, in fact. I had to have a conversation with my son this week, and I said, let's go to the book of Proverbs. What are the seven things that God hates? One of the things is a thing he was doing. You know one of the other things that God hates? A man who, just, who, who, who sows discord amongst the brothers. So if you're gossiping and you're going to friends to talk about other people, you're sowing discord, and God hates that. 
don't know about you, but I'm not so sure I want to do something that God hates. Doesn't mean he doesn't love you. Doesn't mean he doesn't love you any less. Doesn't mean you lost your salvation. But I can tell you that you will you will answer for that. You're going to answer for it. We need to look overlook offenses made to us. This, don't hold a grudge. And Paul and Peter says in First Peter he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. We can serve one another with words of encouragement. When was the last time you encouraged somebody? I know it's not common today, which makes it even better, but when was the last time you sent a note to somebody just saying, hey, I was thinking about you and I just want to encourage you? Paul told the Ephesians church to not allow any corrupting talk to come out of your mouth. And yet think of the church today. I think sometimes that corrupting talk is more common than it should be. I think as a community, we need to be a community that outspeaks negative things 10 to 1. I think for every negative thing you might hear in the church, there needs to be at least 10 positive things that people tell each other in the church. That's what needs to happen. Well, yeah, but have you seen that person? I can't think of anything good positive I can say about them. Well, you, you better look. I'll give you a list. I bet you I could list at least... Ten things for each of you that I think is positive about you. We serve one another when we esteem those who are over us in the Lord. That's the next one. When we when we when we, we are serving each other, when we when we hold those who are over us in the Lord, when we esteem them, when we hold them at a high, at, 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 we look at them as our leaders and we respect them. It might sound kind of self-serving for Paul to say these things and for me as a pastor to say these things. But he says we need to respect those who have authority over us in Christ. He told the church in Thessalonica, you need to respect your leaders. They've been put there by God. That doesn't mean that you allow your leaders to do anything they want and to walk all over you and to do the wrong thing, but it means that you do respect them. Which means if you have a problem with them, you talk to them. You don't talk to everybody else. Because here's what Paul ultimately, after he's telling them to respect their leaders, he says, be at peace among yourselves. I think that peace in the church today is directly related to the amount of esteem that the body pays to those that are leaders over them. And I'm not just talking about me and the elders. I'm talking about Sunday school teachers. I'm talking about the kids and Sunday school teachers, the deacons. I think the peace that we have in the church ties, is tied directly to how high of esteem we hold those that God has placed over us in the church. Finally, we serve one another in love when we hold others more significant than ourselves. Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, in Philippians 2, he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of the full accord of one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Pretty plain there. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. This is the mind of Christ. That is how we can love each other. Those are just a few. There's multitudes of other things we can do to love each other. You know, some messes are worth it. There's no doubt. And some are not. Church is a mess worth making. It really is. But the key is knowing how to work through the messes as they arise. Because what? Guess what? They're going to arise. Paul's calling the church to work through the messes it makes. Within the church and in our lives by serving each other in love. As he said in Ephesians 5, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. That's what we need to do. That's what we need to do. Let's pray. Thank you for joining Living Faith on our YouTube channel. My prayer is that this message today has encouraged you and strengthened your faith in Jesus Christ. We would love to connect with you, so please subscribe to our channel and hit the bell so that you get updated when we add a new message. Also, please leave any comments you might have in the comments section. We would love you to join us live for our service on Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock. We hope you have a great day today. God bless.